Our second scripture lesson today comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her immediately, she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his donkey or his ox from the manger and lead it to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said all of this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things being done by him. This, too, is the word of God for the people of God. Our gospel lesson this morning places us directly in the middle of a debate over the interpretation of Scripture. Ultimately, that's what's at odds here, isn't it? Whether healing on the Sabbath is in line with, scripture, or with what Scripture says or not. The leader of the synagogue, he has read the law of Moses. He knows the laws surrounding the Sabbath. He knows and believes that in six days, God created the world. And on that seventh day, after everything had been called good, God rested. And so the Sabbath was set aside. It was a holy day, a day dedicated to the Lord. I can almost imagine him reciting from memory, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and you shall not do any work, with that emphasis specifically. And, and that is what scripture says. It is, in fact, the law, full stop. For the leader of the synagogue, understandably, scripture holds a high level of authority. It is a sacred text central to his faith, his vocation, his life. And I say all of this because I don't want to villainize this guy. Too often when we read the New Testament, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the synagogue leaders are the, the bad guys, right? They're the unenlightened villains who refuse to get on board with what Jesus is doing uh, or teaching. They are rigid, immovable, rule-following nerds, hypocrites. But, and you and I, you all know that I am loath to come to the defense of anyone in authority or men, generally. Uh, this guy, he was, he was doing his job. He was doing his job. He is the leader of the synagogue. He is the religious authority for his community. And Jesus comes into his space, shows up at his place of business, and starts behaving in a way that is in direct defiance to what this leader believes. And it isn't just this man's job either, it's about his belief. And belief, particularly those that are deeply held, beliefs that are worldview creating, 
isn't something that you throw around willy-nilly. It isn't capricious. So when this guy says that Jesus has done something wrong by healing on the Sabbath, he believes it. Something that he holds as fundamentally true has been confronted, and one could even say dismissed. And so I don't want to discount the way he has interpreted scripture or the way that he reacts when that interpretation is confronted. But Jesus interpreted scripture differently. He approaches the law in a different way. He doesn't throw out the book. He does not ignore or deny it. Jesus knows the scriptures too. He would have learned scripture in the same way as the leader of the synagogue. I mean, that's what he's doing there. Jesus is in the synagogue teaching. So he knows that the Sabbath is sacred. He knows that it is meant to be dedicated to the Lord. But the woman who has been dealing with this physical ailment appears among the crowd of listeners, and Jesus decides that now is the moment she has to be healed. We aren't given any insight, really, into his choice. I doubt that Jesus did any exegetical work. He didn't pull out his Hebrew dictionary to figure out what the law might really mean. He didn't consult other translations to see if it maybe says something different. As far as we can tell from the text, this woman didn't even ask to be healed. She just appeared in the synagogue. I imagine it was a place that she frequented. She was a faithful person looking for hope and comfort, and she found it in Jesus. Woman, you are set free. And so she stands up straight and begins to praise God. That, in the synagogue's leader, in, leader's interpretation, is in direct violation of the law. It is contrary to what he found in scripture. But for Jesus, it was more right than allowing the woman to carry on in pain, or uh, doing what he did was more right than allowing her to continue on in pain and discomfort. In Jesus's interpretation, a Sabbath could only be considered good and holy if the children of God sharing in that Sabbath were themselves good and whole. For Jesus, you could not honor the Sabbath, uh, you, you honor the Sabbath by standing up straight and praising God. For Jesus, you cannot interpret scripture, cannot delight in the law of the Lord, cannot stand by when someone is suffering. And while I have no desire to villainize the leader of the synagogue, this for me is where his particular interpretation of and adherence to the scripture falls short. Because at the end of the day, this story isn't actually one about the authority of scripture or different ways to interpret the law, but rather it is a story about a woman who was suffering and who found relief and freedom. This woman is not evidence in a case on how to honor the Sabbath. The woman um, was not a tool to combat Jesus, nor was she a means to shame the synagogue leader, a way to point out hypocrisy. She was a person that was suffering. And that, I think, is ultimately the point. Theological debate, interpretive disagreements, discourse, all of those have a place. Scripture is important. It is our sacred document. It is our primary source for understanding who God is, how we develop theology and faith. But it should never have more authority be placed in higher regard than very real human beings, for they too are sacred. 
When we read things like Psalm 1 and think about delighting in the law and being planted by streams of living water, that all feels well and good. But when the law meets someone's real life, things are different. Priorities change. Scripture, the law, the Bible, is never more important than a person. But, you know, perhaps I'm giving Jesus too much credit and the synagogue leader too little in this situation. I mean, it's not as though this woman was on fire and the synagogue leader would stop them from intervening because it was the Sabbath. Was the situation so dire that she needed to be healed on the Sabbath in this synagogue in front of all these people? She'd had the ailment for 18 years. What's one more day? She could have come back the next. And as I was writing this week, I thought about that question a lot. Why did Jesus need to heal her right then and there? Surely he knew that what he was doing was going to cause a fuss. Surely he knew that the religious leaders would be bothered. Surely he knew that he would be upsetting the status quo. And surely he knew that he would be in a position to confront and then shame the leaders. So why now? Why like this? And as I was contemplating, I couldn't stop thinking about um, the letter from Birmingham jail. So while in jail, Dr. Martin Luther King, he read this open letter that had been penned by eight white Alabama clergymen, two Episcopalians, one Catholic, two Methodist, a Baptist, and a rabbi, unless you think that we're left out of it, um, a PCUSA Presbyterian. The call for unity letter names that while hatred and violence have no place in religious or political traditions and that work has to be done to end racial problems, they also urge the black community to cease their protests, feeling anxiety perhaps that laws were being broken by the protesters um, or that unrest was happening in their city. They insist that uh, the demonstrations are unwise and untimely and that the black community should be seeking proper channels to move forward um, without extreme measures. These were, I imagine, faithful men. Men who took their faith and took their vocation seriously. Men who studied scripture, who read the Bible, who gave a high level authority, of authority to the Bible. Men who perhaps in those weeks in 1963 put a high premium on passages like, to everything there is a season and to turn the other cheek, and to bless those who curse you. Men who, like the leader of the synagogue, valued their interpretation and the status quo over those who were bent over by oppression, bent over by the very systems and structures of our country. So Dr. King read their words and wrote his now famous letter in response. He wrote this. I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. For years now, I have heard the word wait. This wait almost always has meant never. We have waited for more than 340 years for our God-given constitutional rights. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into an abyss of injustice where they experience the bleakness of corroding despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. 
Jesus would not abide this woman, this daughter of Abraham, suffering for one more moment when it was in his power to set her free from the pain, to make her whole. So the status quo, a rigid interpretation of the law, a negative peace that removed tension, none of that was acceptable in the face of human suffering. Jesus does not throw up his hands and say, I mean, it's not great, but it is what it is. And Dr. King would not be told to do things the right way and let suffering continue. The standard interpretation, the status quo, was not acceptable. And I would love to say that we as a society, as a people of faith, have gotten better at that. That we see people over structures, that we read our Bible and interpret our scriptures through the lens of humanity. But then I look at things like mandatory minimum laws and books that are banned in schools and the outlawing of drag shows and the unquestioning support of countries and systems that perpetuate violence and know that we don't. Higher value is too often placed on comfortable structures, face value interpretations, ease of execution, maintaining the status quo, rather than on human lives, knowing and seeing and caring for every person. These are all ways that we throw up our hands and say, no, it, it isn't right, but it is what it is. And I submit that when we approach the world, let alone the Bible, that way, we have placed, our author placed authority in the wrong place. Think about the joy and transformation that is found in putting people first. And I don't just mean in big ways like healing someone or ending segregation, but in simple acts of humanity that push against rigid interpretation. Like when a member of our church lost her dog, she looked for him for days, weeks even, and put up posters around the neighborhood until one day she got a call on a Saturday afternoon from the family that had found him. They were Orthodox, but they found the dog and flagged down a neighbor who was driving by so that he could call the owner. Even though they weren't meant to labor on the Sabbath, they made sure to find a way to get the dog back to his owner and to his home. Or when sweet George Vandermeer's 90-year-old grandma flew in for his baptism, but then George got a fever and couldn't come to church because we were still in a time of COVID restrictions. So Pastor Katie rounded up some elders and went to their house and baptized George in his front yard, in front of his family, including grandma. Perhaps that's not what our book of order intended, but that is absolutely the right thing to do. Loving people, helping people, being there for people should always be at the center should always take priority over systems, structures, biblical interpretation, the status quo. Am I suggesting then that maybe the Bible doesn't matter or that we should throw out all the rules and laws, the things that make us uncomfortable or maybe just anything that doesn't have to do with Jesus because he seems to get it right? I mean, this sermon series that we're walking through together is about the fundamentals of our faith and the Bible is one of those pretty fundamental parts, isn't it? And that, that's what this sermon is meant to be about. What authority does the Bible have? How is God speaking to us today through Scripture? Is God speaking to us today through Scripture? Scripture does and should have authority, but that authority should never be twisted into, uh, into domination or apathy. 
In fact, I believe that Scripture's greatest authority is in reminding us who and how we should love. St. Augustine wrote in the fourth century that anyone who thinks that he has understood the divine scriptures or any part of them, but cannot by his understanding build up the double love of God and neighbor, has not yet succeeded in understanding them. Or to quote our master of scripture interpretation, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your being and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You, should love, you must love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and all the prophets depend on these two commands. So what authority does the Bible have? I suppose in some ways it only has the authority that we give it, but it certainly doesn't give us any authority. It does not make us better, more righteous, or more holy than anyone else. It does not promise us riches or easy lives, but rather it calls us to, you know, it demands that we see people, that we see them and care for them. So may that be how we plant ourselves by streams of living water. May God's word for us today and every day be one of love. Amen.